Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to your Boo Crew Podcast. This would be episode 392. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and joining us on this celebration of the greatest freaking genre in the whole world. We hope you, yes, that is you listening right now, are doing well. Let all your worries wash away, because you know what? We all have them. Don't fall for the negative stuff on social media, maybe some posts some people are putting out there. Not all, but some are making you feel not so great and maybe making you feel even alone in some ways because so-and-so is doing this and this and why do all these people seem like everything's coming up roses all the time? If that's how you're feeling, for what it's worth, I'll be the voice today saying you are not alone. You are more than enough. No matter who you are, everyone is dealing with their own dragons and some people deal with that by amplifying the positive. So we're going to let our collective love of horror... That's you and me talking right now. We're going to let that love amplify our positive because you're about to be hanging out with a true icon who is likely part of your amazing memories of what made you a horror fan in the first place. A passion that has become an important part of your identity. And there is nothing but positivity in that reminder. Back for his third time on the Boo Crew, but this time is extra special as he came to the Speakeasy studio in person to talk about his incredible new documentary, Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, The Robert Englund Story. It's on digital and bloody disgusting Screenbox right now. It also gets a stunning Steelbook Blu-ray exclusively through Walmart and a collector's edition everywhere Blu-rays are sold on July 25th. We talk about everything from his love of surfing, reflecting on 20 years of Freddy vs. Jason, tales from the sets of the Elm Street films, our love of Jack Brooks' Monster Slayer, and the mechanics involved in taking part in this wonderfully creative documentary that really honors the ongoing legacy and work of a true cinematic legend through and through. I would argue absolutely everybody remembers the first time that they were exposed to the world of Freddy Krueger. So let's step back into that world for a moment, shall we? And the incredibly expansive world of the actor behind it all, Mr. Robert Englund. It's episode 392, and Hollywood dreams and nightmares, the Robert Englund story, is now slain! (laughs) This is Robert Englund, and you've fallen asleep to another episode of Bloody Disgusting Spoo Crawl. (laughs) Ha 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 ha! Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a remarkable storyteller whose influence on pop culture is, is really unprecedented. His ongoing body of work continues to make not only an indelible mark on cinema, but he's got the ability to carve out unique and unforgettable characters with performances so powerful they have become cemented in the pantheons of folklore itself. Cutting his teeth on stage, bringing to life the plays of Shakespeare from The Two Gentlemen of Verona to Romeo and Juliet. Since 1973, he's graced movie theaters and TVs and close to 200 projects and 
counting parts in the most well-loved series in history, from soaps to chips, Charlie's Angels V, the 12-time Emmy-winning Stranger Things, and much more. He's brought to life the worlds of Earth's greatest superheroes in his astonishing and impactful voice work. He's acted alongside the best of the best, from Johnny Depp, Susan Sarandon, Burt Reynolds, Richard Gere, Streisand, Schwarzenegger, just to name a few, and got the chance to collaborate with the greatest filmmakers of all time, like John Milius, Robert Aldrich, and Wes Craven, even stepping behind the camera himself. Through his work with Wes, he gave rise to Freddy Krueger and to the world, personified the timeless boogeyman in a way that had never been done before. Through him, an everlasting legacy that has spawned eight films, a TV series, an endless parade of merchandise, and endless inspiration etched into the creative conscious of anyone who was taken to a camera, pen, or stage thereafter. It is no question that his tremendous trajectory is a subject of a stunning new documentary film chronicling his adventures through storytelling and the magic of surrendering oneself implicitly to story. It gets a beautiful Steelbook Blu-ray exclusively through Walmart in a collector's edition wherever Blu-rays are sold at time of recording as of July 25th. Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, the Robert Englund stories on digital and bloody disgusting Screenbox right now. We are most honored to welcome back returning guest to the show, the legendary Mr. Robert Englund. Yeah. yeah. Stop, stop. Only one of you is within slash distance. Endless merchandising. I haven't seen any Freddy Anna around. <clears throat> oh, we have some oh, some stashed away somewhere. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's so nice to finally meet you. person. We've done this twice yeah. over Zoom over the past year. Yeah. I think once for Stranger Things, and um, I'm forgetting the other time. Oh, it was for the... Um, the documentary TV series you were doing with the um, unexplained phenomenon. Yes. Well, you know, this is more fun for me, you know, yeah. even though I have to schlep up. But, you know, I today I drove by a, a, a girlfriend's house on the way up the hill here. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and one of my editors is your neighbor, too, uh, who, uh, one, of the, one of the guys that uh, cut 976 Evil. So. No way. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah. Oh, my God. So it was fun. It was fun coming up. Oh, that's very nice to hear. Well, I was asked to do uh, the host of 20. 20 years of Freddy versus Jason panel at Monster Palooza here in Pasadena, which happened, I think, at the beginning of this month. Unfortunately, you could not be there, but I had a wonderful conversation with Mr. Ken Kersinger uh, about the film. So, 20 years of that film, when you look back at that film and, and what it has kind of summed at this point, I mean, the last time you really donned the Freddy gear. In a, in a film, in the big screen. What are your fondest memories of that film? Well, you know, we that script had been kicking around and being revised, you know, as long, uh, long ago as 1984. Oh, wow. I was starring on V, and NBC had sent me out to do the Thanksgiving parade in Sacramento, and I was up there in my little with my little blonde afro and my uh, tie doing the the Queen Elizabeth wave, <laughs> you know, to the crowds in Sacramento for the Thanksgiving holiday. And I was just planning to get to the wine country after that. And uh, at the end of the parade, I jumped off the float and then I took off my bow tie and I was ready to drive into Napa, Sonoma. And a Harley Davidson pulled up with this muscular, gorgeous guy with long blonde hair, filthy, you know, Levi's and a vest on. And he got off and he said, Mr. England, I want to show you something. And he took off his vest and he pulled his pants down to his knees. And he had a full blown uh, Japanese Yakuza mafia anime tattoo. Oh, wow. From his neck to his knees of Freddie and Jason grappling. Like sumo wrestlers. That is stunning. Multicolored, wow. fresh, 
still a little bit of blood on the seams. <laughs> and and so this idea that New Line and all of us wanted to exploit the audience is untrue. This sort of male adolescent fantasy of, dude, like if, if Freddie and Jason threw down, who do you think would win? You know, goes all the way back to kids sitting on the stoop in the 30s wondering if the Wolfman could kick Frankenstein's ass. Yeah. So it's... It's it's this thing that's that it's self generated, and there was a script as early as the um, as as eighty nine or ninety, I believe, and I'd heard the talk from various people at New Line over the years, but I think it wasn't until they found Ronnie U. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, a couple of years earlier, I'd been with the uh, French uh, Elvis Johnny Halliday and uh, John Landis and uh, Aja Argento uh, on a jury uh, in the French. Alps, and we had given an award uh, to Ronnie Yu for Bride of Chucky. Oh, yeah, and, and you, can, right. you know, we're all getting fat on French food and French wine, and 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 at nine o'clock in the morning with our bad French coffee, we we watched you know Bride of Chucky and and Jennifer Tilly, and we all just you know wet our pants, and we we couldn't wait, and then and the and then a couple of years later, here comes Ronnie as the, the sort of one guy that New Line believed would understand how to mash up Freddie and Jason into this sort of quasi-graphic novel, you know, fun movie that, that has aspects to it uh, of Guardians of the Galaxy and Deadpool and Evil Dead, you know, but, but that fun thing that was necessary. And I think it's really Ronnie's vision uh, that, that put it over the top because that was a very very successful film. Oh, yeah, yeah, huge. Yeah. Do you think that the, the popularity of Freddy ever affect the way he evolved in your mind as far as the way you chose to play him at that point? You know, we followed the instincts of the audience somewhat, uh, and Wes was a little perturbed that we got as, had as much fun with Freddy as we did. Perhaps we jumped the shark a bit with part six, although we did that intentionally that was sort of our uh, uh remarking on the culture our sort of warner brothers cartoon uh of nightmare on elm street and all of popular culture but if you look back freddie's a cruel clown he's cracking wise in part mm-hmm. one you know i'm your boyfriend now nancy yeah. and he's cutting his fingers off and shooting pus at people <laughs> you know and he's putting <laughs> tina's face on and pretending to be her and that phone turns into a tongue and he tries to french kiss nancy yeah. so you know freddie's already this cruel clown and this wiseacre throwing the culture and 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 the teens fears back at them so we just you know we just went to sort of the the the, the perimeters of that uh, as we went on because the fans loved it so much they loved having you know a monster with a personality mm, and you yeah. did so because well. let me tell you jason and michael myers not so much you're right exactly the personality <laughs> department <laughs> ready is way scarier yeah exactly so we'll talk about the documentary i mean chris griffiths and, and gary smart the that's a part of the team that involves those directors tell us how the whole idea came about or what did you see in this team that made you give your trust in them to tell your story well as you can well imagine people have approached me before and it's most it's it's all very freddie centric mm-hmm. and they wanted me to do a lot of narration and things and you know a lot's already been said uh, about nightmare on elm street the franchise intellectually and in terms of popular culture and when i met you know chris and gary uh, 
we hit it off almost immediately. I'm a fanboy. You know, you've met me now. You, you know I'm a fanboy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and all kinds of stuff from theater to, to, to horror, to science fictions, you know, fantasy, regular films. You know, I, I like a good cry. You know, I, I'm, you know, I like a Sondheim musical. I, I'm just a fanboy. And with, with, with Chris and Gary, they were helping me finish sentences. Mm. You know, I was struggling for the name of some some uh, some wonderful actor from a Hammer film, and they'd go Herbert Lom, and I go yes, 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 Herbert Lom, Pink Panther, blah blah blah. And and then I would talk about I'd be talking about American actors that influenced me or that I wanted to be like at a stage in my career in Hollywood, and I was trying to think of Strother Martin. They said or Warren Oates, and these are people that I idolize, Brewster, and I love these actors. And I knew then that that both Chris and Gary had my back, and that. If they had me sitting, you know, in a men's room in a in a pub in London and they were getting 20 minutes of interview time with me that if I did choke, you know, after too many beers or an Irish whiskey, they would be able to supply me with the name of the actor or the director or the film that I was talking about or that I was digressing toward and that they sort of had my back. Yeah. And also the mechanics of this thing are really unique. The way that they find old archival photos and, and give them motion and movement and turn them to life a little bit and the animation. What do you think that that adds to the experience? Well, I didn't know about any of this. Yeah. You know, until I saw it in Spain and uh, at the festival in Sitges. And, the, and, you know, I had no idea who they were talking to. And that's what was, to me, the most clever thing they did. The two most clever things were that they would find people to support a story. Yeah. Or echo a story or to, in fact, embroider uh, something that I had brought up, perhaps. And and I love that. And, and you know, it's, it's very heartwarming and flattering to see people like Lance Hendrickson and Mick Garris, you know, uh, come out and, 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 and champion you, you know, and, and uh, it's also very uncomfortable. But they also found the making of footage. Yeah. of various films over the years. I've never seen that. Oh, I've never wow. seen any of that. And uh, probably because after I've seen it on video or I've seen it in the theater or I've seen one of my films in Blu-ray, I don't really do. You know, I, I'll look at an older film on Blu-ray just because they look so good now on a big 50-inch screen with a sound bar. But I'm not really doing that making of thing mm-hmm. that's that, that's part and parcel with those i'll watch a sequence you know or of a film i've directed or something to see if it looks better on Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> but but they had found they had round up uh, incredible home movies and back screens you know backstage stuff that i was just blown away by and and i didn't want it to be this movie robert england this talented guy no it's it's robert england been around over 50 years literally as we sit here in this phenomenal room uh with all this memorabilia around us this is literally 50 years of me being in movies i starred in buster and billy in late spring and june of seven of 1973 so it's exactly 50 years and a couple of years ago i and I, I, I'm used to seeing some things, but there's always new stuff, and then there's great occasional old stuff. 
and then but people have been getting better and better at prospecting you know oh yeah digging deep and going down those rabbit holes and somebody literally brought me a picture of me where I look like a skinny speed freak John uh, a Sean Penn and Jamie Lee Curtis in an episode of Nancy Drew and she's my mama she's my biker mama you know? and uh, <laughs> I mean and I you know I'd never seen that and just and I'd completely forgotten that I'd worked with Jamie on that and 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 somebody else brought in that same day a picture of me uh you know uh being interrogated by james earl jones on an episode of his first television series paris uh you know and i think mary beth hurt is in the background it was a set still it's like i had never seen this stuff and then i said to myself you know um uh, gosh, I'm, I'm, I've been around the block, yeah. you know, and I really have, you know, worked with all these different people. And I was thinking about that old six degrees. People used to tease me six degrees of Kevin Bacon, six degrees of Robert England. And I realized, you know, I did a TV movie directed by Gilbert Cates with Richard Thomas, Jack Warden, Oscar winning Jack Warden, who's in my favorite a Twilight Zone episode, Sharon Glass, and Lillian Gish. So I went, I, I did a TV movie with Lillian Gish. I really am six degrees from everything. Exactly, in more ways than bacon, yes. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I, can go, I can go Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. I can go D.W. Griffith, wow. you know. I can, I can get there, you know, Jackie Coogan. You know, I can get back there and... Uh, and I forgot. And I said, well, maybe, you know, it's just time to share those stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, dreams and nightmares to me is hills and valleys, you know, because we all have ups and downs. We all have shallow times in our career and we all have great heights in our careers. And you never can predict what they're going to be. Mm-hmm. You never know. I never set out to be a horror uh, you know, a franchise star uh, for 20 years. But that, you know, it's th- these things, they, windows open, doors open. You're on this merry-go-round. You reach, you grab the ring. And a long time ago, somebody told Mark Hamill, I think this is advice from Mark, never get off the merry-go-round while it's still moving. And uh, we know, I know too many really wonderful actors that made that mistake or tried to change a course in their career and probably shouldn't have, <clears throat> probably should have relished that success a little more and i just stayed loyal to the genre after i peeled that crap off my face (laughs) and uh it's it i was older and uh you know like the guy used to say in saturday night live baseball has been very very good (laughs) horror movies have been very very, they sure have they sure have and you've been good you've been good to us did you have something you wanted to jump in on i'm about to go into you know, I was just thinking. Like, He's been taking notes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> one of the things I loved about the documentary is um, hearing these young actors and directors uh, tiny stories that, you know, you walk on a set and you, you're giving them a pep talk, a pat on the back and saying, hey, you got this, you know, you can, like, you're doing great or, or this is how we can work out the scene. And, you know, I was, re- I'm, I'm, I've been really curious about bringing that into your first role as Freddie on the Wes Craven set to these young actors, Heather Langenkamp and Amanda Wiss and Johnny Depp, what kind of pep talk did you give them? Well, at that point in time, we were all doing this thing together and it was new and it was new to me. Right. Uh, I had never done special effects makeup before. I'd never explored having a frame around me that was surreal, larger than life, a landscape of the, of the mind, of the nightmare, of the dream. And, and painting yourself into that 
uh, both uh, with, uh, using external acting tricks and internal acting tricks. So I wasn't giving a lot of advice to Johnny Depp or to, to Heather Langenkamp or Amanda Wiss or, or any of them uh, on that particular project. Um, I had done a lot by then. I think I'd been in 12 or 15 movies uh, by that time and a, and a successful television series. But I wasn't the seasoned veteran yet. That came a little later. And what I noticed a little later was a lot of the young kids are so intent on finding the truth and in a, in a scene and their particular agenda as a character within the scene. And and that's all good and that's all the right and correct way to work but when you're doing horror and 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 science fiction and fantasy there are so many elements that have to be respected with lighting and camera and practical effects and cgi and other special effects that and someone had told me robert you know it's better to be at about 70 percent and have the light in your eye then be 100% and be stuck in the shadow oh, wow. or, to, or to hurt the effect or to ruin the effect or to make the effect impossible to achieve. And I went, yeah, that's part of my job. That's actually, so I sort of imparted that piece of wisdom that I probably got from a cameraman or an effects guy or somebody early on in my life. And so I would tell the kids, I'd see these kids working so hard and then they'd have to wind up doing it 12 times. Mm. And no matter how good you are, 12 times in, something's not fresh. You're either afraid to repeat something because it's no longer fresh to you. You're changing something that you shouldn't change because it's gold. Yeah, yeah. But it's not gold to you any longer because it's not fresh to you any longer. Or you, you, you're no longer inspired because you're tired after doing it 12 times in a row. Uh, and maybe you would have gotten it on the third or fourth time had you had your light Down. in your eye. The Boo Crew will be right back. It goes beyond just other cast members uh, who you've worked with in the past. Talking about the impact that you've had on them and the way you've treated them and helped them on set, uh, be it Nightmare on Elm Street or any, any other film... But there's also a side that they talk about at the conventions and meeting fans who come up to you and all these people say and fans that I know have met you and and you've treated us in that way in the past too at conventions is that when you go up to to meet you that you are the only person in the world. It's it's, it's the two of us, you know, and, and, and we're all that matters and you walk away from meeting you with a little bit extra you know not just uh, tim sullivan put that very well you you walk away not just with what you expected but a little bit more and why is that important to you and where do you think that you learned that from because that's that's not necessarily easy i don't think it's a conscious thing i don't think i think it's important yeah um i remember being very very young and having and being told by someone that i idolized uh that i was special and that was Steve Allen. 
who was a precursor to Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show to Jay Leno. Right. He had a comedy ensemble of brilliant people. Tom Poston, who later did New, New Heart for years. Louis Nye, great neurotic comedian. Tim Conway from The Carol Burnett Show. These Gabriel Dell, wonderful sign of Sidney Brunstein's window, Lorraine Hansberry on Off-Broadway. All these wonderful, wonderful, extraordinary people in his comedy group uh, on TV. And I, w- I loved it as an 11-year-old kid, you know, getting to stay up late at night, you know, when my sister was taking care of me, my, my stepsister. Or, 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 you know, when mom and dad were out, you know, watching it. I loved it. And I loved it, the comedy group. And he came backstage in my first paraprofessional, semi-professional role, 12 years old, and I was doing Pinocchio, you know, and I was good. And I, and I kind of knew it. I, I kind of loved getting laughs in the same place every night and sure. building to that laugh and setting that laugh up and expanding that laugh. But he came backstage. He had a, a, a business associate's daughter was was in the play with me i think she played one of the white caps that pinocchio swims through after he gets out of the whale or something swam <laughs> beautiful older teenage girls i'm right on the cusp of puberty you know these girls are teaching me how to blow smoke rings and brassiers <laughs> whoa you know uh but anyway latent fantasies be down be gone but anyway so uh he came backstage to to, to give her congratulations and a two dozen red roses and uh and i heard him say where's that where's that kid that played pinocchio and he literally manhandled me over to a flat leaning on a wall uh and he said you know you're a funny kid you're a real funny kid you can do this if you want oh wow and you know i don't think adults do that as much anymore for sure and i'm 12 so that was my first confidence booster you know that i got so i remember that i remember how much i loved horror movies as a kid mowing lawns to go see hammer films and you know the horrors of the black museum and opening day of forbidden planet and vista vision at the lorena theater on ventura boulevard in studio city with my chico's bonbons melting in my lap and ann francis <laughs> making my hormones bounce around and you know the, the creature from the id was that cgi how do they do that? Is that animated why do they do that took us like five viewings to figure out that was a saber-toothed tiger but i remember all that so when i meet the fans see how i digress when i meet the fans at cons i'm not consciously doing that but i do have that sense of respect because i remember when that was me but on top of that i figured if i do it when i if i if i suck it up to go do a con and get on a plane and schlep somewhere i'm if i'm there i'm gonna i'm gonna do it there's no reason to not do it i'm there i I came i'm gonna i'm gonna you know submerse myself in this experience but the other thing, I've done nearly 100 movies now and four television series and scores and scores of guest stars. People bring, for the last, I don't know, at least 20 years, people bring the most extraordinary stuff for me to sign. And 
it's re- I wouldn't know about it. Sure, yeah. If this fan in Brussels or this fan in Spain or this fan in Miami hadn't driven or taken a train or flown to come to see me and brought this specific thing, a, 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 a still I've never seen before yeah. of me with somebody uh, or a poster, a European poster, the the great Indonesian lurid, saturated color, best of gore sequences poster. Yeah. You yeah. know, how many ways does Freddie kill in the net air three poster? <laughs> you know? And your name is in, you know, uh, this foreign calligraphy or in Cyrillic, you know, um, it's just so much fun to see. And I also have a bunch of sort of A-list television films that in Europe were released as movies. So when I'm in Europe, somebody in Germany will bring me one of, a poster of one of the TV movies that I did. That's like a movie poster of a movie that to me is just as a memory as a TV movie. Exactly. But wow. it was a real feature film in Europe. So there's a you know a picture of me, you know, uh, uh uh, in one of these, which I've never seen before. So I'm, I get excited because I'm a fanboy, you know, and to see this stuff. And I think that uh, that excitement tr- go, you know, gets on the fans and they, they pick up my excitement when things like that occur. And so if you're the third guy in line, you're getting remnants you're of that. Getting, yeah. You're getting hit with some of my spittle too. That's you know? great. That's great. We love getting the chance on this film to connect with you in ways that we haven't had an opportunity to. One thing that we, that you talk about is your love of surfing. I'm always curious, how did you get into surf? Was there a particular kid who brought you into that world? And what did you love about surfing? I grew up on a street with a kid who was a natural athlete and he was a gymnast. And uh, I think one of his uncles was in the Olympics. He actually got me into a famous swimming school in Encino, California, uh, Encino Swim School. And I was I had diving lessons with Dr. Sammy Lee from the Olympics there. And I was I was a champion swimmer for a while as a child. And I think I got a, a, a junior varsity or a varsity letter in swimming in high school. But and then I quit the team because I hated early morning workouts. Uh, but and my, my, my coach's name was Coach Craven, by the oh, way. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was a surfer too. But no, I, I went down to uh, Newport Beach with uh, the girl who I had followed into the theater, the older girl. You know, when you're a 12-year-old boy, and you're sort of handed off to a 14 and a half year old girl who's dating a guy with a car. And she's the most beautiful girl in the San Fernando Valley and she wants to be an actress, but she has to take me around with her or her mom won't let her go out with all these guys because she's going out with older boys. Sure. So it's sort of like this anchor ball and chain around her ankle. But we, we'd grown up together. She knew me and I knew when to look the other way and to make myself scarce. She and my stepsister were the two most beautiful girls in Newport Beach in the summer of 1960 or 1961 or around there. And they were dating two boys whose parents had died in a car accident or a plane crash. One of them was 18 and they had were allowed to stay in the family home on the water in Newport Beach. They had worked as cabin boys on John Wayne's Minesweeper. Oh my and God. And they lasted longer than anybody and they were good looking and they had this reputation and everybody was taking care of them because their parents were lost and they had fallen in love with these two girls that I had to that had to take care of me all the time. They, they, you know, dyed my hair white, you know, because it's all, you know, surfing USA. Yeah. And what existed down there at that moment of time 
was the Rendezvous Ballroom. Now, it had been Glenn Miller and the big bands during World War II, Bal Week, Balboa Week, uh, like Spring Break in Fort Lauderdale and all that. But now it was Dick Dale playing every song that Quentin Tarantino exactly ever uses now in his right. life. <laughs> yeah. right. Long extended versions, hearing that rock oh. god play. And a sea of peroxided girls with white lipstick on the bottom lip, a Marlboro in a red Velcro uh, pouch on the front of their hooded nylon red parka with their pack of Marlboros and their little blick lighter and their cigarette. And you didn't ask a girl to dance. You just gently pushed them out onto the floor and you danced to these extended gar- guitar solos. Wow. Surfers stomp. You know, forever, and they would go on and on. And I was sort of part of that. And I just, because of that, I went right into the heart of the surfing universe in Newport Beach. And the two older boys, you know, had to, had to babysit me along with dating, you know, <laughs> my stepsister and the most beautiful girl in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. So they taught me how to surf at uh, Huntington Cliffs. And then I came back to the valley and I was already ahead of everybody in the valley because i was you know turning 13 and i'd had a whole summer in newport you know uh, getting lessons from older boys you know in the shore break at 19th street nice <laughs> wow and it just you just fell into that light. Were you, how, how often were you doing it? were you chasing waves like every morning were you well up? i didn't drive yet so yeah. now it became incumbent upon me to go with the older boys where i lived and so the boy down the street who was a gymnast he was getting his driver's license soon you know and we didn't hang out anymore because he was 15 and a half and I was 13 and that's a big age difference in that part of adolescence but he did take me surfing a couple of times if I came up with gas money which was the holy grail in those days because you had to you know drive pretty far to get to the beach so I began to surf with him a little bit I remember he came to my house we we had moved and he came to take me once when I was in the ninth grade uh, so I would have been 14 and he was already in high school and he had a, a primer, a gray primer, uh, uh, postal truck, panel truck with a three dimensional American Eagle on the side. Oh, cool. <laughs> and then the surfboard decals for his boards on the back windows and hammocks. And places to put the boards inside above our heads. And my father looked at it like, what is Robert getting into now? And off we went to Malibu at like three o'clock in the afternoon after school, you know, to go, you know. But uh, it was a a really romantic time. And I was what they call a gremlin or a grom. Grom is what they call kids my age that surf back then. You know, it's sort of like boys without driver's licenses. It's this purgatory, you know. You're full of hormones. Girls don't look at you. They're all with the older boys that that have driver's licenses, you know. And you're just sort of stuck there with a skateboard, you know, and a cheeseburger, you know, and all of this energy. (laughs) So you just catch a lot of waves, you know, you get a lot of practice. The documentary takes a really good look at your life and your career. Were there any insights that you gained while filming that surprised you? Well, you know, it's it's very humbling and flattering when uh, uh, you see your 
fellow colleagues. You know, I'd see Mick Garrison, Lance Hendrickson, and mm -hmm. everybody saying these nice things about me, you know, and I just defer to those guys and respect them both so much. And, and, and my leading ladies, my beautiful leading ladies all showed up. And uh, uh, so it's, it's uncomfortable because you don't know that that's coming when you, when you see it the first time and it's flattering and it, but it's also, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm no spring chicken. I just had my 76th birthday. And the other part of it is, I mean, it's like, it's like, oh yeah, they're giving me this award because I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of that, but there's also, it's also a bit like being Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer when they go to their own funeral you know, in Tom Sawyer and they attend their own funeral and listen to people talk about them because I wasn't there for any of that. I had no idea who was showing up, Steve Johnson and all these wonderful people that I go with. I mean, Steve Johnson and I practically, you know, I mean, we, we did an all-nighter in Milan that I'll never forget, you know. Uh, if I say Russian girls, you'll know what I mean. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, it's like, it was just a crazy, my agent, my, my late great agent, Joe Rice was with us too. And I uh, just, are, you know, but I, you know, I haven't seen some of those guys in a while. They've been off doing their own projects or people have moved to different cities. And um, so it, it's, it, it's humbling, but it's also that idea of I'm, I'm watching it and hearing it and dealing with those emotions. But it's also that fly in the wall thing. Again, that Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer thing of, of, of hearing people say nice things about you. But I wasn't in the room when they said the nice things, but I'm in the dark hearing them now in a movie theater. It's just a strange uh, disconnect. You know, many great directors don't let their actors see dailies, rushes of yesterday's work, mm -hmm. even though it's much more common now to see a little bit of a sequence you're doing on instant replay to paint yourself into the frame or, 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 or to see what it's going to look like. But the reason you don't go to dailies or rushes, and I learned this from the late, great Bob Rafelson, is because you see yourself in a master over and over and over again, unedited. You don't see the person talking to you or the person listening to you or the person feeding you the cue. And you see that dead air all around you. Yeah. It's not going to ever be there when the movie's edited together. Well, that you can literally... Here I sound like Freddie now. You can literally <laughs> dream about that. That can enter your your dream world, and and it can affect your performance. Sure, uh, because your it, it affects your vanity, your memory. You start correcting stuff you don't need to correct. You start worrying about things you don't need to worry about. Well, that uncomfortable feeling that can occur from seeing a master over and over again. Uh, of a piece of a uh, monologue or a, a scene you're doing with another actor unedited that can kind of intimidate you and impede your performance. That same awkwardness that you respond to that also happens when you watch a documentary sure. with your life. Like, I mean, I'm walking, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to fix scenes that I did 30 years ago. When yeah. I see them pop up, <laughs> let alone watching my hairline recede. <laughs> <laughs> There's one film I had to ask you about, too, that, that wasn't covered in the documentary. I've always been curious about it. Uh, and I mentioned it because it was made by a bunch of scrappy kids up in Ottawa, Canada, where, where I'm originally from. And that would be Jack Brooks' Monster Slayer. Well, that, yeah, Trevor. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, uh, those guys are huge film lovers. And I went to this sort of... Uh, magical city uh, uh, up there adjacent to Ottawa. I'm trying, I'm forgetting the name of the city. And uh, 
that's where they had their offices and they were great real real great contemporary man cave alphabetical order every great boys movie ever made you know uh uh lots of scorsese you know yeah yeah and uh and and trevor wanted to do this film he had his budget but he really wanted to do a salute to practical effects yes as well and he got he assembled this very talented very clever cast and talented people and it was just a great adventure you know and i worked in canada a lot you know i've done several movies in toronto and uh, lots of work in vancouver and uh, so it was fun uh, and it was fun to be with trevor trevor's father is, is quite an important gentleman yes that's from correct. that part of the world yep. uh and i still uh, need to visit him in wales at his fabulous hotel i have a standing invitation oh that yeah take advantage I will of take that advantage of yes <laughs> but trevor's like kind of like you know i wish i was trevor's wingman because he's kind of like hanging out with steve mcqueen and he surfs and he windsurfs and he downhill skis. I heard a story that he'd been on a, 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 a kind of like the equivalent of an explore, sea explore scout thing uh, off the coast of, no of Great way. Britain. And wow. they'd gotten in trouble, you know, sailing down uh, uh, towards uh the french coast and and that he'd literally helped save everybody kind of white squall you know got them all in you know but he's just the real thing he fell in love with his high school sweetheart uh and uh he's just this he's kind of an old soul and it was really fun hanging with him and working with him and and that movie has a nice little little cult status it's sort of like the last of the really kind of fun uh, practical effect films it's got a bit of it's almost like a hug for ray Har- yes, r- yes. Ray, ray harryhausen very yes. much so yeah, yeah professor crowley nice. i love it uh, as we get to the end here you've got a couple movies on the way i hear natty knox is that what daniel well, harris yeah and- that's uh, and and, and uh, uh bill Mo- Bill Mosley. Yeah. Well, Bill Mosley, you know, Bill Mosley's like aging into John Carradine. Yeah, you know, he's, right? got, he's literally yeah. got one of the greatest faces in movies now. Yeah. And he's the sweetest, nicest guy in the world. I, you know, Bill's just so calm. But and then there's that face, you know, and and and, you know, I've known Danielle forever and we've worked together several times. But when I heard she was doing the role, I, I called Dwight Little, my my fan of the opera director. And I said, Dwight, she's too young, you know, and it's just that weird moment of time where and i'm so glad she's navigating this because i always think of danielle as a kid yeah. you know and and you know or the sexy girl i'm having a beer with and we hook up at a convention you know and we all yeah. say what have you been doing no what have you been doing and all that and uh i said well you're gonna have to put circles under her eyes and stick a cigarette because <laughs> yeah. it's her first mom role, yeah yeah you know That's and funny. she really has an uh, an arc uh, in this film but it's natty knox knox with a k Knox, Natty, short for Natalie, and she's a, like a Roger Corman screen, scream queen, oh. and she ages out of that, and she returns home, and her real name is Natty Knox, a K-N-O-X. Oh, okay. Comes Got from it. the German immigrant stock, nice. Nat- Natalie Knox, and the Natalie Knox is the name of the nursery rhyme homage nightmare on elm street that the kids sing because of her legend the dead scream queen that came back to town oh wow yeah and it's it's just a great little dusting and homage 
to Halloween. There's a little bit of Nightmare on Elm Street, but it's also very original and and independent in its own right. And and Bill's terrific in it. And there's a bunch of new kids in it that are wonderful. Uh, I I'm gonna I've seen only pieces of it, but I'm gonna go see it. Uh, I think it's in literally in a week, uh, less than a week. So uh, I'm anxious to see it, and we'll talk more. But you know, it was great to be reunited with with Dwight Little. But Dwight just did a movie recently with Robert Patrick. Oh, it's wow. like it. It just has the flavor and the feel of one of my favorite films, Charlie Varick by Don Don Siegel, with Walter Matthau and Andy Robinson from Dirty Harry, and uh, it's just this great little. You know, white white trash bank robbery family film. You know, and Robert Patrick is sublime in it. He's just doing all this incredible work now, and uh, I just I I I tell I want everybody to see it. You know, definitely. Yeah. All right, and then okay. yeah, Natty Knox, July twenty first, and the trailers out now. If you're listening, oh, the trailers out. Oh yeah, just, the just just came out like yesterday. Oh, it's oh, fan- okay. it's phenomenal. It looks amazing. I can't wait for yeah. it. All right, so uh, the Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares of Robert England story is on digital and bloody disgusting screen box right now on Blu-ray. July July 25th. Robert, as always, thank you so much for your time and thanks for everything that you continue to do for storytelling. Oh, I'm not leaving. I'm moving in here. All right. Hey, yes. you're welcome. I, I've already chosen my bedroom. <laughs> I want the uh, uh, the Linda Blair gynecological <laughs> dentist office. <laughs> oh, boy. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 392. Special thanks to our guest, the one and only Robert England. See Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, the Robert England story on digital and bloody disgusting Screenbox. Now, we cannot recommend recommended enough and it's on blu-ray july 25th production tracks provided by the good folks at power man 5000 who are on tour right now till next time on behalf of myself lauren and leo it is the boo crew saying sweet screams thanks for listening to another episode of the boo crew podcast haunt the boo crew at tales from the boo crew.com tales from the boo crew on facebook and instagram follow us on twitter at tales from the boo the boo crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.